my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm speaking with Doug Thorpe. He is a performance-driven senior executive, entrepreneur, board member, thought leader, and coach with more than 40 years of success in the financial services, executive coaching, oil and gas industries, and small business. Leveraging extensive experience in guiding business transformation for growth-oriented organizations, he is a trusted guide for mid-cap companies to large global enterprises requiring expert assistance with leadership development, team performance, employee engagement, culture shifts, and change management. Additionally, Doug has written several books and hosts a very popular podcast titled Leadership Powered by Common Sense, where I actually was a guest not too long ago and um, check out his his podcast. I mean, if you're listening to this one, you've got to listen to his because, man, it, it's an awesome podcast. So, uh, Doug, thank you so much for coming on and, and agreeing to have this conversation with me. Uh, it's kind of cool having you on the other side. <laughs> well, and it's a pleasure to be here, Dave. Uh, you're right. Uh, the show you did with me uh, was was a great success. Got a lot of great feedback and comments on it and uh, always happy to uh, return the favor. Let's start off where it all began. Um, where were you born and raised? I am uh, native Texan. I was technically, uh, technically, that sounds like a weird statement, but technically born in Houston, but uh, quickly uh, family relocated. I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and spent uh, all my school years there. Um, you know, got out of school and went on to, into the journey of uh, whatever turned out to be adulthood. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I read that you... Uh... Well, your your childhood was pretty interesting. You lost your father at a very early age, and then uh, your your mom uh, tried her hand, or actually, she didn't just try her hand. She w successfully started a business and grew it, and uh, that was kind of uh, what I guess probably shaped you into this entrepreneur, huh? It, it did. And, and you're right. Yeah. Um, my father passed away not long after I was born and, and mom kind of made a pledge to stay single and just make the best of it. But she had the wisdom to surround me with mentors, even at an early age, like, uh, you know, starting in Boy Scouts, for instance, and um, went through all that. And along, even through my middle school, high school years, there were always guys in my life that were phenomenal models. And when I, when I talk about it, I, I remind people, or I want people to understand, 
these weren't necessarily some kind of business superstars or rock stars, but these were just, you call them average Joes, but they had a heart for service. They had a heart for a, a, a young man that lived down the street and, and, you know, they took me under their wing and every one of them taught me two or three different things that I've carried with me. And as we were doing all that, you know, I got my life lessons and kind of weaved this giant patchwork quilt of, of uh, worldview. And uh, I, man, I wouldn't take for that. You know, I, I, I don't want to digress, but I'll tell the quick story, you know, as a, as a young man and into even my first marriage, I struggled with that absence of my dad. It was a, it was a psyche thing that I never quite got resolved. But through a journey of uh, discovery, uh, I, I really learned that even if I had known him, I probably would have been disappointed because uh, the reason he died, he was an alcoholic. His, his liver conked out on him. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, for people that have that kind of dynamic in their family story, they know what I'm talking about. And, and so all this longing and yearning I had to know my dad, I, when I got older and realized and I, I, I could compare to my friends and colleagues you know, their family stories weren't all that great. So, uh, you know, I, not to sound insensitive, but I kind of got to the point of saying, well, I don't think I missed anything. (laughs) (laughs) You also got involved with ROTC and uh, you ended up going to Texas A&M, correct? Right. Yeah, growing up in San Antonio at the time, uh, we had five military bases. So, you know, nine out of 10 people were associated with the military. Anybody, you couldn't, you know, well, they say here in Texas, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting somebody that was in the military. And uh, it was just kind of a natural evolution. So, yes, I got involved in high school ROTC, loved it. And by virtue of that, qualified for an Army scholarship to go to Texas A&M and join the Corps of Cadets there, which, because by virtue of the Army scholarship, I was already on contract to be commissioned after graduation. So went through four years of college and and then went straight um, two weeks after graduation, uh, reported for active duty in the Army, uh, spent four years active duty traveled around a little bit. I, I actually never went overseas, stayed in the continental U.S. the whole time, but uh, left there and came to Houston to join a regional bank. And uh, it was well, a... Well, first, you, while you were in the Army, you got your, your master's degree. Correct. Yeah. I was able to... Um, I, I, I tell some people the story. I served on active duty at a very strange time in U.S. military history. We had a very narrow window while I was in uniform. We were not engaged anywhere in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was the closest thing to peacetime that we've ever had. Now, there was a skirmish in Grenada. There was uh, a, a little thing going on in Panama, but you know, really, in terms of major military action, there was none. And um, I, you know, I'm. It's another whole story to talk about what that meant. But what it meant was, I actually the, the army for me was large part a day job, and. I was able to go to night school on base and get my uh, master's degree. I, I, I 
pursued an MBA program. Yeah. That's really cool. And, and so that gave you the ability to, you know, transition into the civilian world and made a successful corporate career out of that. And you, and you went into banking. Right. Through, a, you know, through some uh, college friends, I was introduced to uh, this regional bank in Houston. At the time, it was called Texas Commerce. And it was uh, quite an up and coming bank. We were publicly traded. We were already at about 17 billion when I joined. There were um, some leaders at the bank that themselves were ex-military. So they saw my resume and they jumped at it and, and you know, almost hired me on the spot. It was pretty close to that. Um, and um, I went to work there. And the long story short there, I went immediately into management jobs and uh, ran small teams at first and then larger teams. And at my high water mark, I had about 300 employees at the bank in my division. And we were doing uh, operational support for several of the lines of credit that were out and around the bank. Um, we grew the bank during my tenure up to 27 billion. And we, um, we successfully ran off 64 consecutive quarters of earnings growth. So 16 of my 20 years there, we were, we were continuing to grow our earnings year over year. That caught the eye of some New York money banks, and pretty soon we were merged. And long story short, we are, the legacy of our bank is now part of the Chase organization. Wow. The, the thing I'll say, and maybe closer to the topic we might explore today, is um, through all of those experiences, um, leadership was always a thing for me. I was, I was fascinated by the concept of what leadership meant. I, and it actually started in Boy Scouts. Um, I was offered opportunities to be a, a student leader in the organization and, and then through high school and the high school ROTC. I was commander of our unit there my senior year. Uh, went into A&M, got into A&M, was successfully, you know, promoted into different levels of responsibility and authority. I ran a big student organization in the student center at, at A&M for a number of years. And um, it, it was just a thing that it, I was, I was just drawn to the opportunity to be a leader. And, and you and I talked about this on my show, the spirit of it is servant leadership, you know, being hungry and, and motivated by the idea of serving a greater good, whether that be a, um, an organization that's doing something specific in the community, or in the case of the U.S. Army, you're serving the citizens of this great country to, uh, provide and protect. And um, that was just something that really resonated with me from an early, early age. To be in such a large organization and, and see that consistent growth, you have to believe that it is directly related to the leadership. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Our leadership team at the bank, and, and the irony, and I, I, I admit this jokingly, but uh, I'm, I'm dead serious about it. I was young enough in my career, I had no idea how special the environment I was in was really about. 
I, I just thought good people ran things this way and this is how all banks ran and this is what we were supposed to do. And we had a rigorous, rigorous discipline about budgeting, about cost control, about revenue growth, sales and marketing, procedures, systems. I mean, it was incredibly rigorous and I don't deny there were a lot of people that came and went in the management ranks that weren't necessarily wired for that kind of rigor because it, it was it, it was intense at times but essentially when it came uh, you know q3 every year we went through a very almost religion of budget planning um we were doing zero base budgeting before anybody called it a thing and zero base if you've never done it means you don't care what your past performance is let's take a blank piece of paper and let's build this thing up from the bottom up what do you need What's it going to cost you? And, uh, you know, what, how many people, how many systems, how many, you know, widgets. And um, we went through that every year. And you couldn't simply say, well, you know, I had $100 last year. I'd like 105 this year. And, you know, that's what I want to do. That wasn't good enough. Uh, that was not going to get you a budget advance. A lot of people didn't, didn't suffer that. They, you know, they, they couldn't tolerate that kind of rigor. But, um, I was, it was fine with me because I kind of felt like a lot of it in some fashion felt like the army. So no big deal. <laughs> but uh, later, many years later, and by the way, I, I did, I spent 20 years with the bank and took an early retirement in my, um, you know, late forties, which is not all that bad. If you think about it, um, much later, I started doing some contract work for the FDIC, and only then did I realize that uh, not all banks ran the way ours did. And <laughs> there were plenty of banks that I had actually failed because of bad management, bad leadership. But ours, no doubt, was a leadership laboratory. I still, to this day, there were people I worked for and worked with that I, I really value as mentors kind of going back to that theme of my early childhood, you know, having mentors in my life, uh, there were definitely people at that bank that I, I still to this day count as mentors and, and I'm thankful for the experience. One thing that I wanted to bring up to you is looking at your career, when you started off in the finance world, I mean, you, you had managed things when you were in the army, financials, uh, you were responsible for um, inventory and logistics and that sort of thing. Um, but it's a completely different world, isn't it? Going from that to a bank? Um, uh, my answer would be not much. There's a, if anything, I would argue there's a, uh, there's no doubt in, in the army environment, there's a very distinct chain of command. I mean, I had some kind of emblem on my collar that said, I got authority over you. And, and people were visually and visibly, you know, reminded of that every time you connected obviously in the bank, you really don't have that. I mean, I'm sitting at a desk somewhere that's in an office that connotes some kind of leadership, but it's not that same in your face kind of power of the authority. Now, the interesting thing is, and I talk about this a lot in my coaching work, 
whether it's military or civilian, you know, everybody has an org chart and there's some officer or, or designated manager or leader in these boxes up the chart. With that comes the power of position. That's true in every environment. But what I've learned, and I, I figured this out a very long time ago, the best leaders use that power of position as an absolute last resort. Everybody knows it's there, and everybody, but a good leader will take that and put it in the bottom desk drawer and say, don't want to touch that. I don't want to have to go there. So they, they work their skills and abilities as a leader to provide the influence of people in, in far more productive ways than having to sort of lord that over them or, or carrot and stick, as some people call it, you know. Have you got any personal experience with imposter syndrome? So I, I've had conversations with a, a couple of clients that very, very intelligent people, really good leaders, but find them so found themselves in a position of authority that is, you know, out of the norm, you know, like a big leap. They have the talent, they have the expertise, they were selected for a reason, but because of that big leap, almost like this insecurity. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And have I had it personally? Yes. And have I had it more than once? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. What, what brings that on and, and how do you overcome it? I think the, um, and at first, let me say, I, I'd love to lean into that and, and get into that with you. Um, first, let me say, though, that the notion of imposter syndrome is far more widespread than a lot of people will ever admit. I think anyone that has some level, and I say this cautiously, but some level of emotional intelligence actually experiences it as they make these moves through their career or job changes or even life changes. Um, uh, one of the first times I, I really significantly experienced imposter syndrome was when I brought my daughter home from the hospital the first time. <laughs> first child, first uh, layer on the bed and you go, oh my goodness, what am I going to do here? Uh, talk about imposter syndrome. Um, but, but no, seriously, with the work, it, um, it happened. Uh, I had it happen twice pretty significantly in my army experience. Um, I, um, my first duty station responsibility, I was, I was appointed executive officer of a troop training unit. We had about 450 soldiers in our unit and this was their advanced training after basic you know, the, the method was you send a new recruit to basic training six weeks, and then they come to advanced specialty training. And we, um, we were one of those units and, but, but students were rotating every two weeks or so. We had a new crop come in. We would graduate some, add some. I was doing okay as executive officer there until I was probably about four months on the job. And we got noticed that my commander was being sent on temporary duty assignment 
outside the base, and he was going to be gone for 90 days. As executive officer, that's second in command. I was going to be acting commander. So I'm a whopping 23 years old, and now I'm the commander of a 450-soldier outfit. And all my NCOs that worked for me, the first sergeant, all the platoon sergeants, all those guys, had just come back from Vietnam. I mean, Vietnam had just, it had been over about two years, and um, they were pretty grizzled and, and they had, they had seen it all and they had been through all that. And uh, they were great guys. Don't get me wrong, but that that's, that's all the support I had. And, and it was a lot by the way, but I, you know, well, I'll never forget the, uh, the CO packed his bags and left and I showed up for work the first Monday and I kind of in habit, I went to my XO desk and the first sergeant came in and goes, what the hell are you doing there? You get in the commander's office, you know? And I said, it's not my office. He goes, oh yes, it is. And, uh, so I packed up my little things and went in there and, you know, took the seat and it, it was overwhelming. I mean, it really was, it was like, Oh goodness, you know, what have I gotten myself into? But uh it, it worked out fine. It 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 went away. And you know, using that as an example and even the other ones. So people ask me as I do my coaching now, you know, they say I'm suffering imposter syndrome. Uh, you know, I've uh, I had a bank executive not long ago that I was hired to coach for him and um he had been hired by this bank to be the specifically to be the replacement for a senior executive that was going to be retiring like in 18 months. They went through the 18 month kind of training and indoctrination. And then sure enough, the senior exec pulled his papers and, you know, wrote off in the sunset and this guy was put in the seat as promised. And he was really consumed with that imposter syndrome because he had a multi-million dollar book of business, uh, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars of business and a team of, I don't know, 80 or 90, I think he told me, and uh, just really suffering with the imposter syndrome. So anyway, the, the, the answer that I've come up with for that is to, number one, go back to your training, because every experience I've ever had where, where the training has been anywhere close to good or better you there's a there's a baseline there that can give you a lot of comfort so you go back to that training remind yourself of what you do know and then focus on the idea that somebody picked you to do that somebody put you in that seat and i i call it the uh the foothold on the mountain you see mountain climbers they hammer in those stakes and you know they use that to climb and um it's it's that rock solid foothold that you need to to stand on to move forward day by day do what you know, do the best you can until you can build your own natural confidence for the situation. One of the things that, that I've talked a lot about, and when, when you're building a team, when, when you take on this role, a, a leadership role, and whether it's a small team or a large team, you've got to develop trust with those people. 
to be effective. And they've got to be able to trust one another as well. How have you been successful in, well, teaching somebody how to build trust with the team and then within the team? Well, that's a phenomenal question. And it, it happens to be the subject of my last book is, uh, is uh, we call it Trust at Work. A longtime colleague of mine, his name is Roger Ferguson. He and I collaborated to write that book. And it, it actually started back in our banking days. Roger actually worked for me at the bank uh, many, many years ago. Uh, we developed a friendship that was far greater than the, the work experience, although work was great. Um, we've stayed in touch. And in fact, we still, to this day, we happen to just, through a series of events in life, we're, we're geographically close again. And for several years now, we do a weekly breakfast where we count each other as accountability partners for what we want to do in this world. And, um, but anyway, we wrote this book and it's centered on this idea of how do you build trust at work? And it's interesting, the body of work that is described in the book actually started as a program that was actually taught at our bank. And the gentleman that was the true originator of it passed away a number of years ago. And in the process of his estate settlement, the intellectual property that went with this program was was bestowed to my friend Roger and then he didn't do anything with it much for a while but we a number of years ago we started working together and um, um, decided that we needed to bring this thing up and resurrect it again because and, and how it happened really truthfully I was doing some team coaching work at some of the big national and global brands that I've had an opportunity to work with and I was sort of lamenting that I had some ideas, but they were kind of loosely connected and there wasn't a really good framework. And I was, I was working on trying to put it together. And one day he showed up for our breakfast and he had this diagram and he said, let me give this to you. This is what you need. And I started looking at it and I go, oh my God, that's it. What it is, is this. And I, I think I can be brief about it to describe it. When you stand back and you think about the subject of trust, how, how do we build trust with somebody? I mean, think about if, you know, you're young again and you're dating and, and you want to find a life partner. What do you do? You, you go out on a date and you spend your time talking. You ask each other questions. You, you probe and you prod and you, and what you're doing is kind of going through your own mental list of values, beliefs, motivations, preferences, all these things. And you're checking the boxes going, oh, that person does that. They, they, they like that too. They believe that too. They enjoy this part too. And pretty soon you say, wow, there's a real connection here. And I, I could see asking this person to be with me. Well, guess what? Same thing happens with employees at work. They come to work with questions. And if you're the boss, they're going to, they may not be as forthcoming in asking those questions, but believe me, they've got them. And if you as a leader want to build an environment of trust, you need to intentionally start answering questions or providing answers to questions. So the, the diagram I referred to 
takes everything you can think of and puts it in a six-part circle. So divide the circle into six segments. The first segment is the fundamental question, do I even want to be here? <laughs> Sounds pretty basic, right? Yeah. And you would say, well, if you took the job, sure you want to be here. Well, not so much. Well, you know, once they get there and once they see what's really going on, they start questioning, do I, do I want to stay around here? Is this, is all this other stuff, you know, work for me? So that's always kind of question number one. Question number two is, why are we here? What's our purpose? What, what greater good are we serving? And people need to know that. They, they, they want to know that. There's an inherent, innate hunger to know that. And so a leader needs to help paint that picture. And then block number three is the plan. Okay, I think I see the purpose, but how are we going to do that? What's the plan? And, you know, plan can include division of labor in the work team and who's doing what and, you know, using your uh, background in firefighting, Dave, I know, you know, you think of a pumper truck, you got a driver and an operator and a, some hose handlers and, you know, everybody's got a division of labor in it. You know, you train to make that work like clockwork when you first arrive, right? Yeah. Same thing's true with any kind of team. Everybody needs to know everybody's role. So that's the plan. But then you get to number four, and that's the practice of, all right, let's go out and do this. Well, inevitably, sometimes you run immediately into roadblocks. I love the purpose. I love the plan. But you didn't give me the right computer, boss. My, my computer won't do that, you know, or my machine won't make that cut. I can't do that for you. I'm sorry, you know, my, the practice area has problems. Number five is the question of performance. How is what I'm going to do going to be evaluated? Is it gonna be a fair system of recognizing my work? Is it, am I gonna get recognized at all for my work? And then number six is the payoff. And payoff is not limited to compensation, although that's often a big part of it. But payoff also includes sort of the pride of accomplishment, like talking about my bank where we ran off 64 consecutive quarters of earnings growth. Did we have some swagger as bankers? Yeah, we did. There was some pride in being part of that team. You know, we knew what we were doing. When, when I've taught my leadership workshops you know, talk about building trust and the foundation of you know effective team leadership and and really building a high performance team is that communication layer which you spoke about and i found myself teaching communication skills most of the time to help leaders develop uh, because so many times when, when leaders fall or fail or, you know, they're not as successful as they'd like to be, more times than not, it goes back to the communication. They're not effective communicators. I agree totally. And if you think about it, everything I described in those six segments and the, and the core questions that people are going to bring 
being able to successfully answer those questions or dig out those questions so that they can be answered, that's all communication on the leader's part. It's how you communicate, how you uh, share information, but communication is also, in my book anyway, it's also about how you draw communication out of your people. And, you know, you can't just walk around with an iron fist and, and tell everybody, you know, the um, public flogging will continue until morale improves. You, you know, you can't do that. <laughs> One thing, uh, so another topic that I wanted to approach with you, I mean, you've got your, your finger on the pulse. Um, after this global pandemic, and you know the the great resignation all this stuff um where are you seeing the the biggest shifts um what do you see you know when every when the dust settles what do you feel is going to be the new normal great question and um, there's part of me that's going to say, if I had an answer for that, I'd be a very rich man. But um, <laughs> I think we're all still working that problem. The, what I can tell you is for the large um, popular brands, you know, the Fortune 500 type companies that I do get a chance to work with as part of my practice, Everybody everywhere is struggling with that. Their leaders everywhere are trying to find the right answer for return to work, um, balancing the remote work versus mandates to come back to the office. Um, the, the common theme that I'm hearing is that the workforce in general has a new sense of empowerment. The the mental and emotional thinking that had to carry you through the pandemic has caused people to totally reevaluate not just work-life balance. I've actually ditched that in my vocabulary. I now use the word harmony, work-life harmony, because we've proven through the pandemic what's going on at home is in fact happening parallel in parallel to what your work is. It doesn't turn on and turn off because you made the commute to the office. It's still going on. And, and there's new levels of expectation that people have about wanting to honor that. People wanna serve that need at home. And you know, couples that maybe used to operate pretty autonomously individually are now saying, you know, we can do more as a team, but it requires a give and take. And that may mean, you know, you can't be at your desk at 10 o'clock in the morning because I got to go do, I got to meet with my boss. So can you watch the kids while I'm doing that? So there's this fluidity of everything. And it's, it's this idea of harmonizing. Now, the dark side of that. And, and what has been showing up in the whole idea of the, the levels of burnout and even levels of post-traumatic stress that people are reporting from the pandemic, people have lost their sense of boundary because they know they're going to juggle some things during the middle of the day. They're willing to turn on the computer earlier in the morning and keep it on later at night. 
So what used to be the break point between either getting on the road or getting on the train or getting on the bus to commute back and forth, where that was a natural break point between work and home, that got eliminated. And now people are realizing that they've allowed themselves, and it, it has been a choice, is very seldom do I hear it ever be cited as a demand, it's a choice to do that little extra work. Employers are being a little more graceful. You know, they're saying, yeah, okay. You don't have to get it to me at five o'clock because five o'clock is not a magic number anymore. It, just get it to me, you know, first thing tomorrow or something like that. Um, so there's a, there's a blurring of that line. But in all of that, back to my original point, there's it, most employers I know are calling it a kind of empowerment that they never used to have to deal with. So people are showing up for work. And if, if managers are going back to their old form from three years ago, employees are going, not so fast, Jack. <laughs> yeah, That's not going to work for me anymore. Can we, let's talk about something different. Yeah. So it's a challenge. But I like your point also, I'll interject on communication. I have predicted that the aftermath of the pandemic, when the business schools start writing case studies about businesses and how they dealt with the pandemic, I predict the number one common element of success will be communication. How did you figure out how to communicate with your team during the pandemic? That communication piece has to be where part of it is you letting the people you're leading know how much you care about them. That's right. Because if that is a mystery and they feel that they're just a cog in the wheel, you know, uh, I mean, where's the commitment then? Right. You know, they can, they can, head on down the road rather easily. Yeah. I, I tell a quick story along that line. Um, uh, another guest on one of my show episodes shared this story with me, and I love it so much. I wish it was one of my clients that let me say this, but it's not. Uh, she was telling the story of an entrepreneur in New York who had built a, a pretty up-and-coming technology firm, and I don't know how many people he had. It's still probably under 20, I'll say. Um, and had, had done a really good job. They had had a really good trajectory. And one day, a couple of the employees came in and said, hey, boss, can we temporarily shut down, just go to the coffee shop up the street? You, how about we take a break and do that? And he goes, that's great. Everybody, and he, you know, goes out on the floor. Hey, everybody, shut it down. Let's go to the coffee shop. And, and you know, he thought it was going to be just a nice fellowship, right? Well, they get to the coffee shop and get their iced coffees and everything. And they sit down and they say, um, we're here. We want to talk to you. We have some issues we want to talk about. And he thought, uh oh, okay. And they proceeded to confront him with what they perceived as his limits as the leader of the company right at that point. That the company had grown, but they weren't going to grow anymore unless he did something different. And they had been talking about it and they had figured it out and they started listing them off. Like number one on the list was he apparently had emerged as a micromanager. 
And they said, we know what we're doing, boss. You need to trust us. We, we, we're going to be okay. And we're with you. We love what we're doing, but you got to leave us alone. You know, we need to. And he thankfully had the emotional intelligence to sit back and go, oh my God, I had no idea. Tell me more. You know, what else do we need to talk about? What? Well, <clears throat> there's a, there's a, lead up story that goes with that. If you think about it, the fact that those employees had the confidence that it was going to be safe to bring this up to him, yeah. that speaks volumes to the leader he already was. Yeah. And the fact that he said, oh my God, I had no idea. Tell me more. And he genuinely meant it. It also speaks to his, you know, capacity to recognize what opportunities were there. And, you know, as the story goes on, he, he took every bit of it to heart and he started figuring out and he decided to hire another ops manager that would get him out of certain pieces of things and, you know, uh, streamline some stuff. And, um, you know, it was a great success story. Wow. I was wondering if you could dig into that component that piece of leadership. Um, I've talked a little bit about it on the show. I'm just thinking that with your experience, with, with your knowledge base, what you can bring to the definition and, and the explanation of what emotional intelligence is and how important it is. I probably have not done enough of reading and study on the exact substance and, and principle behind the whole idea of emotional intelligence. Um, but what I'll say is there was an issue of whether or not a leader had emotional intelligence that existed way before we came up with the term. And for me, it was always, it was about emotion, but it was usually chalked off as a kind of maturity that came maybe with experience, maybe with, well, I'll, I'll leave it at experience, mostly with experience. And there were no doubt leaders that were far better than others at accepting the experience they went through and gleaning something from it and learning and growing with it rather than harboring it as a bad event. And it might've been an abject failure. It might've been a project that crashed or a, or a, a transaction that failed or you know whatever. Um, but rather than harboring that with a lot of you know, bitterness, they looked at the facts of the situation and they, they said, they asked questions like, what could I have done differently? And they mean it, you know, and if they learned that they had done something wrong, then they earnestly worked to correct that. And I think ultimately, and I, I have heard it defined that there are, I think I heard one author and I can't think of his name right now, as we're talking about it, that there's like seven levels of this emotional intelligence and at the peak of it, which by the way, very few people allegedly operate at, but at the peak of it, there's kind of this almost divine view of the world that all of your psyche and psychology is just out of the picture. I mean, you're just able to process what's going on. And I think that's where so many 
uh, certainly with small business owners and even with corporate leaders, we get tripped up over the ego elements of what we're doing. And um, well, I'll say this, and this has come from some experiences, it's actually split by gender. Men suffer more from the ego element of being able to accept feedback. Women, and these are really broad generalizations, women operate more from a mode of fear. They fear failure, they fear being found out. Um, men, on the other hand, get an ego thing going on and it's like, I can't be wrong, or you can't say that to me. And, you know, it that spins out of control. In both cases, an elevation of emotional intelligence um, mitigates those concerns. The, the, the ego gets shut down or hopefully eliminated, and the fear goes away for the women. The, they, they start operating at more of a their own level of clarity of what the opportunities and options are. So when you're coaching your clients, how do you, how do you help uh, members of both genders uh, improve their emotional intelligence? Typically, as we, as we dive into specific instances or situations that they're dealing with, and a lot of times it starts with, moments of change management that are going on because that for all of us that creates the most chaos at work when something needs to be changed or moved moved around um sometimes i ask them to actually walk me through how did they react to that thing or that last meeting or that person and i will get them to actually describe to me how did that moment manifest itself in your body you know did you did you lose your breath? Did you feel tightness in your chest? Did you get a headache? Did your stomach get upset? You know, what, how did all that manifest itself uh, in the way you reacted in the moment? And, and as we start talking about that literal physical manifestation of the, what ultimately is a, is a fail in the moment, um, they start to think, well, that doesn't make sense. Why, why did I do that? That, that, that's not me. That's not what I believe. That's not what I see. And, oh yeah, sure. I can think about that differently. Yeah. And it, you know, it slowly starts to, the sharp edges start to go away. Nice. Well, you've written five books, correct? Right. And are each one of those available on your website? They, they are referenced on the website and all of them are on Amazon just under my name. You can, you can look them up there. And, and for those listening that want to learn more, want to connect with you, have you come and uh, talk with their organization or, or, you know, receive coaching from you? What, what's the best way, you know, I'm guessing just go to your website, which I'll have in the show notes, but uh, would you like to share your website? Yeah, that's the, that's the predominant way. It's uh, it is my name, simply Doug Thorpe, T H O R P E. The E is important. A lot of people leave that off. Uh, Doug Thorpe.com. 
And uh, I am kind of in a season of really focusing on um, founder owners of businesses. And I have a whole program that is rolling out called Founder to CEO. And this is to help that small business creator um, who is already maybe in a million dollar club. You know, they've got uh, a million or two, maybe three million in topside revenue going on but they feel like they've hit a plateau. They, they're, they're kind of stuck where they are. Well, inevitably, as we explore that and investigate that, we're back to um, kind of the guy I talked about in the story. You know, there's a need for the founder to make a pivot and, and make a change to free up the, the next chapter of the history of the company. Um, there's some specific information about that available at the same website, dougthorpe.com slash business. Doug, thank you so much for for coming on and and sharing your story with us. And uh, I would encourage everybody to go to your website, check out your podcast, subscribe to it. You know, and if you haven't subscribed to this one, you you should. <laughs> yes, you should. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, Doug. Oh, Dave, it's been a real pleasure. And, and thank you for your, all your hard work and what you're doing now and what you did before with the fire department and uh, the message you bring to people. It's really powerful. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.